you have probably noticed that the hymns are focusing on the Trinity this morning, and hopefully you'll see why in relationship to the message this morning as well. If you would turn first to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Anyways, I'm going to make a comment this morning about how this section is a great prophecy concerning the text that we're going to be looking at in Mark. You might keep that in mind, in the back of your mind. Psalm 91, starting at verse 9, starting at verse 9, listen to the holy, infallible word of God. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place the most high, who is my refuge? No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. For their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will trend, you will trend on the lion in the altar, in the altar, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot, because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him, I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him, I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, if you would turn over to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13 this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. What a blessing it is to know of the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ over the evil one. We ask, O God, that this morning, once again, this would be registered upon our hearts by the Spirit of God, that we have a wonderful Savior to secure us 
in the glory of thy presence. In Christ's name, amen. In this opening section of Mark's gospel, we have accented his wilderness theme with respect to the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We notice that it is particular to John, to Mark's gospel, that the wilderness is mentioned first, prior to the appearance of John the Baptist, there in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. In all the other gospels, John the Baptist is mentioned prior to the wilderness. So in this light, we could not overlook the setting of the wilderness as all Judea and all Jerusalem came out to be baptized by John the second Elijah. These details trigger in our minds Israel's wilderness journey of 40 years in the Old Testament. As we have underlined again and again, Israel was taken into the wilderness as the Son of God, Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, as a grumbling, rebellious son, they were never able to establish within themselves a permanent spirit, spirit of repentance, a permanent spirit of contentment, with the leadership of their own covenant God, as well as the mediator that God had given them in Moses. Israel, as God's son, could never acquire the final status of sonship under that covenant. Canaan could never become the permanent promised land of their inheritance. Why? Because their hearts were always subject to and captured by the trials and principalities of Satan, whether by the cravings that they had in their hearts for this world, the seductions of the cultures that surrounded them, or the hideous practices of pagan worship invading their own, their own worship. And if you want just one chapter of summary of all those points I just pointed out, just read Numbers 25 this week. Read Numbers 25. All of these elements are in that one chapter. Suddenly... In Mark chapter 1, by virtue of the prophetic word of God in Isaiah, Israel, as the disobedient son of God, finds herself once again in the wilderness. Verses 3 and 4 of our text. It is like a second wilderness journey. This is what we have been accenting. But this time the Lord makes sure that his covenant of promise, his covenant of grace is fulfilled through the one who truly is, truly lives 
and fulfills the status of sonship. As Christ's narrative, excuse me, as Mark's narrative unwinds from verses 2 through 6, he is setting us up for the celebrated son to come. How does he do this? Well, disobedient Israel as God's son comes into the wilderness to be baptized with a baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sin, verse 4. And even as they are confessing their sin, verse 5, we know that such a baptism will not allow them to achieve the final status within themselves as son of God. Like the Old Testament, ceremonial sacrifices, John's baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sin and its confession needs a final end to those ceremonial sacrifices of repentance and forgiveness. And the only way, the only way it can be finalized is through a mediator who is absolutely perfect and without any blemish of sin. You know him. Do you not this morning? Do you not know him? He's Jesus, the eternal, sinless Son of God, who comes into the creation, into the wilderness to be baptized. His baptism moves Israel and the New Testament church from the judgment, from judgment under the law, the Old Testament wilderness, to an era of freedom, of freedom, of triumphant grace in Christ. Oh yes, what good news for all of us who love Jesus. It is really registering now on your heart, is it not? Hopefully it is. Jesus is baptized with John's baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sin. Not because he needs repentance and forgiveness of sin. But because we, we need repentance and forgiveness of sin through a perfect mediator. Through a perfect sacrifice. Now let's focus a little more on Christ's baptism and then look at the temptation in verses 9 through 13. God's sovereign control over these two situations, and I want to stress that for you this morning. God's sovereign control over these two situations will hopefully become apparent to you. With this in mind, let us focus upon two aspects within Mark's narrative. First, in both incidents, the Christ baptism and the temptation, Mark centers upon Christ in the text and not the people. 
not the people of Israel. Secondly, the construction of the verbs in these verses will tell us a lot about the person and mission of Christ coming into the world for his people. I've put on your outline a lot of that construct in terms of summary if you want to go over those during the week. Let us first turn to con the to the situation, let us first direct our attention upon how Mark centers his emphasis upon Christ, not the other people, not all Judea or Israel, in his baptism and his temptation in verses 9 through 13. You may recall from last week's message the contrast in Mark between the all of Israel, all Judea, all Jerusalem in verse 5, if you look at that, and the appearance of the sovereign one, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, verse 9. Now capture Mark's narrative in verses 9 through 11. Look at those verses carefully. Where did Israel go? Where did Israel go? They are not mentioned, nor alluded to in these verses. This omission is intentional on Mark's part. As we mentioned last week, Jesus is the passive recipient of John's baptism for his people, not apostate Israel. Such a passive reception of John's baptism for repentance and forgiveness of sin under the law of the Old Testament for his people. That's what he's doing. That passive reception for the sake of his people can only be performed by the true and final son of God. The ideal Israelite in the context of the wilderness. The event is not pictured with anyone around him except the baptizer who baptizes him with his baptism. Christ is basically alone. Keep that in your mind as we proceed through the book of Mark. It is very important theme. Christ must secure our redemption by himself. The loneliness of Christ to the cross is going to be crucial for us to understand the path of Christ to the cross on our behalf. Mark will underline that theme as we move in the gospel. Only Christ can save us. Now look at verses 12 through 13. 
Mark gives no attention to the dialogue between the Son of God and Satan, like Matthew and Luke do in their Gospels. No, Mark now emphasizes that Christ is driven out further into the wilderness without any human creature accompanying him. The focus is upon the true spiritual religious battle between principalities and powers in the air throughout the entire creation. A battle that has cosmic, cosmic ramifications. The religious foundation of the entire cosmos is at stake in this temptation. religious foundation of the entire cosmos is at stake in this temptation. It's being played out right before your eyes. Secondly, in the second place, we will give attention to the active and passive verbs in verses 9 through 13. I'm not going to make this in any way complex, hopefully. I'm just going to start talk about passive and active. You listen to those terms as we proceed. Hopefully everything will be clear to you. In this case, they tell us a lot about the person and mission of Christ for his people. As we look at these verses... Do not lose sight. Do not lose sight that God's sovereign will is at work directing these two events, his baptism and his temptation. What you should see here in these two events as you look at the text is an inter-Trinitarian relationship and communication with each other. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's the persons of the Trinity that are the focus in this text in terms of their interrelationship with each other. They are front and center as this develops in the text. And that's so important. Remember, God alone saves So God determines the path of his son. Indeed, he came into the wilderness according to the word of the Lord in Isaiah. Moreover, I hoped it is clear about the importance of Jesus' passive response to be baptized by John for our sakes. Paul in Romans chapter 6 3 through 4, provides the entire scope. We mentioned that last week. Christ's baptism in the Jordan is on behalf of our repentance and forgiveness for sin under the law, which in turn points us to the absolute assurance of repentance and forgiveness for sin upon 
the cross of Christ and Christ coming up out of the water, an active verb. He's coming up out of the water, points to the fact that Christ's own righteousness necessitates his resurrection from the grave in which his own people, us, are brought into participation into the newness of life that is secured in Jesus, that is in Christ. Now look again at verses 10 through 13. There is no mention of a human figure in 10 through 13. Interesting, in John's gospel, it's John who tells the whole story that you see in verses 10 through 13 here in this text. Well, that's for another time. (laughs) But you see, the interaction in verses 10 and 11 is between the triune God of heaven and earth only, only. Christ saw the heavens being torn open. He actively participates in this vision. He saw the heavens open. But Christ is passive with respect to the heavens being torn open. God has torn open the heavens. And Christ sees the action of the Holy Spirit descending on him like a dove. Then note the active voice of his Father from heaven. His ordination for his mission of redemption and judgment in the creation comes from his Father himself. The origin of Christ's mission is from heaven. The origin of Christ's mission is not from the earth. It's from heaven. In this context, you do not want to miss the word immediately. (laughs) King James straightway. If any of you have ever been in a Bible study on Mark, I am sure this word has been accented for you as a specific characteristic of, of Mark's writing. It appears 11 times just in the first chapter. It appears 37 times in the entire gospel. Mark uses the term as a dramatic alert of a certain event. Whoa! (laughs) Are you getting it? I doubt if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't like a good drama. (laughs) This is Mark bringing you to the edge of your seat, sitting at the story, listening to the story. It's a dramatic event, you see, is the way that he's using this term. Immediately, Jesus saw the heavens being torn open. A new event of supreme importance is occurring here. The inauguration of a new era is dawning in the entire cosmos. 
God the Father and the Holy Spirit are testifying that the true Son of God has arrived into the creation. The prophetic voice from God in heaven, often given to the prophets in the Old Testament, is now showering the greatest prophet who has ever walked the earth. Yes, the day prophesied by Isaiah chapter 64, 1, is here, is here. The heavens have rent apart. The heavens have been torn open as the presence of the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have invaded the universe he has created. But as the heavens are torn open, the Isaiah imagery there is that the mountains, mountains quake. As you can think about that, as the heavens are torn open, the sun is the passive, passive recipient of this revelation as the Holy Spirit actively descends upon him like a dove. The day of the anointing of the messianic figure by the Holy Spirit has arrived. Look no further. The prophecies of Isaiah are fulfilled. Christ, the Messiah, is anointed. He is consecrated. He is sanctified by the actual Holy Spirit, it is not an earthly anointing ceremony with oil, which the kings, prophets, and priests received under the old covenant. No, this is an anointing directly by the Holy Spirit from heaven. It is a glorious ceremony Surrounded by the infallibility of the Messiah's mission being accomplished. Indeed, the Spirit of God rests upon Christ. The Spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might justice, righteousness, equity, and faithfulness in blessing and in judgment. For Mark, the new covenant is taking shape in the creation, exclusively in the presence of the holy triune God, condescending into a wilderness scene so that the final Son of God ushers in the kingdom, a church that truly escapes the wilderness demise of Israel as the Son of God in the Old Testament. The true Son of God must enter and exit the wilderness on his own. 
surrounded by his Father in heaven and the Holy Spirit. Indeed, the confident and sure active voice from heaven enters the wilderness like a mighty wind with the pronouncement upon the true Son of God. You, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. How marvelous! How marvelous an an operation by the triune God of heaven and earth. Only the Son of God can save you through his complete surrender to the cross. Only he provides the exit for all of us out of the wilderness of barren, of barren, grumping, self-pity, sin. You see, this text, this text that we are looking at, these two events, they are clear. This is a clear defense that our God, the true God of heaven and earth, is a trinity. Is a trinity. You want to prove the trinity to somebody? Here's the text. It's an operation. But our rescue out of this wilderness is not quite complete in Mark's narrative. Christ essentially goes back into the wilderness a third time. The first wilderness is Israel in this Old Testament. The second was in terms of John's baptism. Now Jesus is going back into the wilderness a third time. The same Holy Spirit who anointed him as the Christ, as the Son of God. Now, here comes the word again, right? Now, immediately. Yep, another important event, dramatic event that deserves close attention. The Holy Spirit actively drives the Son back into the wilderness. Remember, the wilderness is mentioned twice in just this brief text in terms of the temptation. Verse 12 and verse 13. Although the son's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin has taken care of his flock in relationship to the old covenant law, the son enters into the wilderness to prove that he is truly He is truly the Son of God who cannot fall to the whims of Satan. The setting of Mark's temptation narrative is a cosmic battle between the Son of God and Satan. The battle between principalities and powers of spiritual warfare that has eternal ramifications for those who worship the creator 
and those who worship the creature. Where are you this morning in this battle? Look at your own life. Where are you? Whether you like it or not, whether you care one way or the other, everyone is on one side or the other. Every human being who has lived, will live, and is presently living. With respect to the Son of God, he enters into once again a reenactment of the 40-year testing, proving, seducing of Satan against Israel as depicted in Deuteronomy 1 through 11. The cosmic dimensions of the two sides are clearly seen in that the Son of God is driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. And during the 40-day period, this ministry of the heavenly angels served the Son in his perseverance against the temptation. On the other hand, Satan, fallen from the courts of heavenly glory, is accompanied by the wild beasts who, according to Isaiah, inhabit even the wilderness. God has regulated their spirit of action, the wild beasts and Satan, To the earth, they are not heavenly. Not at all. Hence the Son, our Christ, is sustained in this wilderness event by the ministry of the Holy Spirit and his angels in order to exit the wilderness battle in his righteous obedience and move to complete his mission at the cross and in his resurrection. Congregation, you may not be able to find a better prophetic voice about Mark's account of the temptation than what appears in what we read earlier this morning in Psalm 91, 9 through 16. Read it this week. And read it as Christ owning the very words in that text. And see yourselves victorious in Christ in the psalm. Mark's entire gospel will accent the sun confronting demons. Christ will continue to confront Satan and his minions and be victorious throughout the whole gospel. Where is your faith 
in Christ for the everlasting victory over Satan and his forces. Will your faith not find a dwelling in the shelter of Christ? I ask you this morning, will your faith not abide in the almighty power of Christ's Spirit within you? Will your faith not say right now that the Son of God is my refuge and my strength in whom I place all, yes, all my trust? If you're wondering, I've just applied Psalm 91 verses 1 through 2 to Christ and place it before you in terms of questions in your own life and relationship with Him. After all, Christ is the sovereign majority of the one of the one let's pray our Lord and our God we are so thankful for what Christ has come and done for us we We could not do it ourselves. We could not move from our sinful state before thee to the glories of thy presence without Jesus. What a gift. What a gift thou hast given unto us. And we thank thee and ask, O Lord, that through thy spirit we would receive such a great gift of redemption in him. Bless our lives to confess and believe and to walk in the paths of Christ Jesus. For his righteousness' sake, amen.